Hello, my name is Sam Gregg and welcome to the Acton Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. Normally you'd be hosted by my colleague, Eric Cohen, who is the Director of Communications and Marketing at the Acton Institute. But today you're with me, Sam Gregg. So thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode to find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that you listen to fine podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Uh, This week, I'm joined by Stephen Barrows, uh, Acton's Managing Director of Programs, and Michael Matheson-Miller, producer of numerous media products for the Acton Institute, as well as a senior research fellow here at Acton. Today, we're going to be talking about two topics that have very little to do with each other. The first, of course, is something that's on a lot of people's mind right now, especially after last week when the uh, inflation numbers for the United States came out and we saw that inflation has now risen to 6.8%. We're going to talk about that first. But secondly, we're going to talk about a much bigger topic in the second half of the show. We're going to be talking about the state of global Catholicism. What's going on, what's good, what's not so good, and how, how our guests today see things panning out over time during this pontificate, but just also around the world more generally. So let's start with the interesting topic of inflation. As I mentioned right at the beginning, we had uh, the inflation numbers released last week showing that inflation in the United States is now at 6.8%. That's a very high level and I believe the highest since the early 1980s. But we also saw uh, the Federal Reserve Chairman and others shifting discussion about how we talk about inflation. We saw that the uh, phrase transitory inflation has officially been retired from the official Federal Reserve lexicon. Uh, And I was reading uh, today that one commentator on many of these issues, uh, Mohammed El-Aryan, I believe that's how it's pronounced, Uh, who used to be heavily involved, I think it was either at the IMF or the World Bank, made the comment that transitory was, quote-unquote, the worst inflation call in the history of the Federal Reserve. So that's a pretty big claim. And fortunately, fortunately, we have today uh, two people who can talk about some of the technical side of this, but also some of the broader economic and political implications of what this rise of inflation and the disappearance of the, the disappearance of the transitory phrase means. So, Steve Barrows, I'd start. I'd like to start with you. Sure. Yeah. Can the you trans- say, say something about the transitory side of um, what was, I guess, the past transitory side of inflation? And what you see going on now in terms of sort of the, the more technical economic side of this? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the transitory phrase, I think, with the Federal Reserve used that because we're coming out of a, a pandemic that seemed to have, have some interesting demand side to it that they thought was the primary cause of what they were seeing in terms of higher prices. You know, as people emerged from 
the uh, shutdowns and they come back into the marketplace and they're more willing, willing to spend. You might see individuals say, you know, things are actually improving and they get out there and make deferred purchases that hadn't made previously when things were shutting down. Uh, and that I think the Federal Reserve thought that that was exceeding the ability of the supply capacity to keep up. But as you pointed out, now they're starting to realize, well, maybe that isn't quite exactly what's happening, that people suddenly aren't having this uh, surge of demand only. It's really, and, and of course, the question then becomes, why is that demand uh, showing a steady increase and a steady pace? And it comes right back to the historic understanding of what inflation is all about, which as Milton Freeman would say, is, a, is an always and everywhere monetary phenomenon. Well, you know, what do we mean by that? What, what we mean by that is that the central bank really has control over how much inflation is going to have, uh, you know, manifest itself in the economy. And the Federal Reserve during the pandemic, understandably, wanted to make sure that things didn't completely collapse. And so they increased and ramped up their mortgage-backed securities purchases, their purchases of uh, treasury securities. And I believe it was an $80 billion a month purchase. Uh, That's just of treasuries. And I think it was $40 billion a month of mortgage-backed securities. Now they're starting to realize that well, this actually has created a, a, a wash of funds within the, the economy, and, uh, and we need to think twice about how much we continue to pump those dollars in, into the, the economy. And of course, what do we have at the same time? We, now we have a fiscal policy uh, that uh, the, the Biden administration wants to massively spend even more money and go into debt uh, by, by trillions of dollars, and the Federal Reserve ordinarily has been very accommodative and they've purchased those securities to enable the fiscal's spending to occur. Well, now they're starting to look at this and say, maybe this could create more problems than we had anticipated. So yes, the whole transitory thing there, they're thinking twice about this and you can tell that it is a bad call. By the way, I went back and looked at the numbers. I'll just kind of add this, you know, 6.8% year over year. One of the things I asked myself is, is that 6.8% partly because prices were so flat during the heart, heart of the pandemic. Right. I uh, wondered that myself, actually. So so I, I went back and, and took a look and did it two year over two year. So, so going back to November 2019 to November 2021, and over the course of that two year period, uh, prices were up 8.1% total. So that's you know CPI numbers. Now, of course, that's that d- does show you that things weren't as severe two years ago, but it's still 8.1% over the course of two years is the worst inflation since the late 80s, early 90s. That's going back to November 89 to November 91. So still, it's uh, it's historic in terms of how long it's been since we've seen that kind of price increases throughout the economy as a whole. So Steve, would you say that what's happened in terms of inflation, would you say that this was predictable, that this would happen, given the stimulus programs embarked upon by, well, remember, the Trump administration did this too, right? They did. They embarked upon stimulus, stimulus programs, but also the low level of interest rates for such a long period of time. Uh, Certainly. What's it? Two, what's it I, I forgot. I've lost count, actually, of the number of stimuli programs that we've had. But what, you know, the Biden administration has done this as well. Would you say that this was pretty much predictable? I think so. You know, back uh, during the Great Recession 2008-2009 timeframe, there were a number of individuals back then that were also very concerned with all of the quantitative easing that was occurring. And we're also predicting an increase in prices. Now, at the time, based on the readings that I had done, because that was a banking crisis, uh, I think that those who had predicted inflation coming out of that quantitative is easing, you know, 
12 years ago uh, were, were, were not correct. Um, because you do have contra- enormous contractionary forces when you have a banking crisis. But in this case, you know, since say, let's say 2016 and beyond, things have recovered quite well. And so if the Federal Reserve continues a policy of purchasing treasuries, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very straightforward economic principle that as you pump money into the economy, other things being equal, you're going to see an increase in the price level. And so I think this is quite predictable because you don't have the same kind of deflationary forces that were occurring that you saw back in the Great Recession. So here's a quick question for you, Steve, before I turn to Michael Miller, and that is, so we're hearing the Federal Reserve, particularly the chairman, Jerome Powell, proud alumni of a Jesuit uh, school in Washington, D.C. I went there. I I actually became president of the United States. (laughs) I was was actually the most famous alum of all. So, so Steve, I did not go there. That's all I want to say. I'm done. I've talked enough about policy. I have a quick question for you, and then once we get Mr. Clinton off the air, Steve, (laughs) um, and that is this. So uh, Chairman Powell is talking about or implying, they're always very careful how central bankers talk publicly, right? But they're implying that they're going to start winding back on asset purchases, etc. What's your sense of what that's likely to do to the American economy? Well, I think as you start to wind down these purchases, if they do get to a place of normalcy where they're not being so accommodative, then you're going to find interest rates will typically go up. Now, individuals make commitments based on what they expect uh, to be occurring in the future. And so, you know, when I think about how low interest rates have been in terms of purchasing a home or refinancing my mortgage, it's been terrific. Well, now I think you're going to see individuals start to take into account if the Federal Reserve does come through, uh, and you know, that's a big if, are they actually going to, uh, to, to, to stop the quantitative easing or at least reduce it substantially? Now, that's going to go in opposition to what currently in fiscal policy is being pushed, which is continuing to, to overspend beyond, well beyond, you know, by the trillions of dollars um, what, what tax revenues are bringing in for the federal government. And that actually, you know, one of the things that people I think underestimate is how quickly things can turn. So if you do have a, a, a contractionary monetary policy or winding down substantially, you could see interest rates go up pretty substantially. Now, that's exactly what you would expect to happen if you want to control inflation. So um, I hesitate to make predictions, but certainly the economics will tell you that if you have certain changes in monetary policy, you're going to see uh, certain results. Can, can I ask a question too on that? Um, for the, maybe to both of you. So I mean, if you think back to the early, late 70s, early 80s, the inflation rates went like 11%, 13.5%. They're really high. Um, <clears throat> that's bad. It's bad for poor people. It's bad for everybody. It, it, just, it just makes it a lot harder to live. So the Federal Reserve Chair at the time, Paul Volcker, he raised interest rates up to 11 and then 20%. Yeah. Now, for us, at least you know, in the last ten years, I mean, you can you can get a fifteen-year mortgage at two point five, two point six, two point seven. A thirty-year mortgage in the early, in the low threes, high twos. I mean, imagine buying a house now with an interest rate of fourteen percent. Right. I mean, it just completely changes everything. So what do you what? So I have, I have a couple of questions, but the first one is, it seems like if inflation keeps going, if it's not transitory anymore. Um, you know, interest rates are are very low. Do you think hey, the Federal Reserve is going to ra- raise interest rates? And then, what's the social 
immediate impact to that. And and I think maybe, let me put one more bigger question. Like if you think about, so I, I was listening to Ray Dalio, you know, his, his theories like on, on how you have what he calls a beautiful deleveraging, right? Where you cut spending, you restructure the debt, you redistribute money from the rich to the poor through taxing, taxation, and then you use both fiscal policy and, um, you know, unemployment, et cetera. And at the same time, you're printing money. Well, you know, we've been printing a lot of money. There's been a lot of redistribution going on. What, you know, he says, if when if this isn't done correctly, it can really lead to massive social problems. And if you think about, say, contemporary social life um, with the you know, 2020 riots and burning down cities and all these things, um, do you think we have the social... So one, my first question is, can you explain, like, what do you think is going to happen? Are interest rates going to go up? And what's that going to do, Steve and Sam? And then the second question is, do we have the strength in the social fabric to handle the what happened in the 80s? I mean, the 68 revolutions were kind of over. It was a little bit calmer at that time. I think it's a it's it's more volatile now. So those are my two questions, so the technical sure, well, question uh, and the social yeah. one. Let me just throw uh, – I'll, I'll let Steve – deal with the technical side. Let me just throw out a couple of historical things. Like, So in the 20th century, we saw some pretty significant periods of high inflation. And the most significant, I suppose, was Germany and Austria in 1921 to 1923, where you saw hyperinflation. It destroyed the German middle class's savings. It radicalized a lot of those people politically, both to the left and to the right. And I mean, plenty of historians would say, I mean, serious historians would say that it's much harder to imagine the emergence of the Nazi dictatorship, but also other not so pleasant regimes in Central and Eastern Europe during this period of time without this significant degree of inflation because it severely hurt um, middle class people. Who And the middle class typically are the strongest bulwark, if you like, of liberal constitutional uh, regimes, right? So when they get hurt, and they get hurt badly, and they say, look, I've been responsible, I haven't um, behaved in a fiscally irresponsible way, but now I'm seeing my the worth of my assets and my money just disappearing in front of me, then, you know, maybe the fascists and the Marxists have something to say about this, right? So now I'm not saying that that's likely to happen, but I think it's important to keep in mind that a lot of people today in Western countries, including in the United States, have no real experience of what inflation can do socially, politically, which I think is what you're driving at, Michael. So, But I remember as a child in the 1970s, as a five-year-old, I remember my parents saying, inflation is here, inflation is seriously bad for all the following reasons, what it does to the economy, what it does to savings, what it does to incentives, how it distorts people's thinking about where they invest, where they don't invest, etc. And they, a lot of their choices become revolving around how do I make sure I protect myself against inflation, which... You know, for things like investment or things like uh, business planning, that's probably not what you want to be thinking about. You shouldn't have to be thinking about instability of the of the monetary system as a as something that you need to consider when you're making all sorts of economic 
choices both in your personal life but also if you're um, running a business, let alone running a government. And I, I remember in the – again, this is now as a teenager in the 1980s, and I was growing up in Australia, but I was very aware of what was happening in inflation in the early 1980s, I, you know, 11 years old. And I remember hearing Paul Volcker's name being mentioned and how he had done this incredibly courageous thing, which I think he did. I think it was very courageous and very necessary – but the cost in terms of unemployment was very significant. And it meant things like interest rates rising on housing and things like that. And that really hurt a lot of people. The same was true um, for myself and uh, growing up in Australia. They had a major inflation problem, which the government and the central bank at the time took a very proactive role at basically um, breaking the back of inflation. But the economic cost and the political and social cost. You didn't have riots in the streets or anything like that, but you had a lot of very angry, disillusioned people. Right. Yeah, so long Steve, gas lines. You. Remember those? Remember those long gas lines? Right. Um, so can I ask a question just on that? So like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but like if you if, if interest rates go up and, and we, have, we move into a recessionary period and we have more unemployment, um, Maybe one question would be, it seems like we've, we've been already working on that through fiscal spending, like our, you know, with the new, the, the new budgets in both the Trump and the Biden administrations, we have increased fiscal spending. We've been doing payments to everybody. We've been printing money. So like, it's almost like we've, this is a, correct me if this is wrong, but there's a sense that we know that inflation is going to come soon. We know there's going to be a recession. We know there's economic problems on the horizon. So we're going to do everything we can do to try to like mitigate them and avoid them. And now here we are with rising inflation and it's almost like, okay, all we can do now is raise interest rates to slow everything down. And all the other things we've already been doing. So can we keep doing that? Because that's going to require more printing money. Right. Well, I, I think this, you that? I think you're sort of underscoring what I think the Fed is facing, which is a real exit strategy dilemma, right? If you have a situation where, and, and maybe I should back up, by the way, I agree with Sam, when it comes down to it, in, inflation is the greater danger to the well-being of people in general than say rising interest rates. Now, mm -hmm. now it is yeah. true that, you know, when, what happened in 82, 83, during the Reagan administration, we had a severe recession that was that was a monetary policy driven recession because Paul Volcker knew he had to snuff out inflation. The only way he could do it was to go through that period of difficulty. Now we could see some similar things happen if we also have to crush inflation if it gets out of control. So, um, but, but if you, I wanna back up a little bit and talk about the interest rate. Because although there's many different factors underlying interest rates in general, you know, measures of risk, et cetera, an interest rate is ultimately what we call an intertemporal price, right? It is, it is the price of trading future for the present. And so over time, when you see an extraordinarily low interest rate approaching zero, what that tells you, or at least what it's signaling to the marketplace, is that there is an enormous amount of saving going on in the economy. But we know that's not true. Right. We yep. know that it's artificial saving that's being created by a Federal Reserve that's printing mo money and, and, is, and is doing so by purchasing mortgage-backed securities and, uh, and government treasuries. 
So at, at root, there's this fundamental deception <laughs> happening in the, in the economy. And unfortunately, what happens, this is one thing both I think Chicago and Austrian economists would point out, is that you create systematic malinvestment. It changes the calculation of what investors are willing to do. And so what we saw back during two, the early 2000s is the malinvestment was primarily occurring within the realm of, of mortgages and, and housing. And then suddenly that bubble burst. Now, it's very easy to look back and see where the bubble was coming as it bursts, but it's very difficult while it's happening to see and, and point to the bubble and say, there it is. Right? Do you think there's a bubble now? Because so well, like, Ray Dalio made this point recently. He just said, don't confuse growth in the financial assets with wealth. Wealth is buying power. And, and when inflation comes, you're, even, if you're, even if your assets are increasing, and again, that's actually mostly like upper middle class and rich people who have assets, right? Not, you, you know, lower middle class and poor people don't have those financial assets. But like the, he says, it looks like your wealth is increasing, but it's not actually increasing because wealth, wealth is buying power. And that, so that's my first question for you. And then I want to ask you about productivity. But I mean, is... Like how how do we think how do we think about about that situation right now, as you explained it? Well, I mean, I think Ray Dalio is right. I mean, ultimately, wealth is your ability to overcome scarcity, and one manifestation of that would be in your buying power, right? So, uh, and then across the board, you'd see that that wealth is ultimately higher, you know, production, right, and overcoming of scarcity. So, when it comes to in, inflation, it you know, I think one of the things that's a concern is that inflation affects people differently, right? I mean, it, it first of all, it it, it uh, is good for borrowers, right? If you're heavily in debt, you'd love to pay it off in cheaper dollars, okay? Um, but if you're a saver, it's especially a saver at low interest rates, then it's really going to harm you over time, right? Because you're actually losing purchasing power. So individuals who have very low return investments, and maybe it's the people who are elderly, their retirement, they're receiving a you know, stipend or what have you from their annuity, uh, that it's, it's just harming their purchasing power. Isn't this, Steve, one of the issues, though, that inflation affects different groups of people differently? So if you are relatively financially sophisticated, I don't mean sort of better than anyone else. I just mean you know how, you know more about finance, you know more about banking, you know more about interest rates, you know about inflation. To a certain extent, you can do different things that will help you to sort of navigate all this. You won't get out scot-free, but there are ways in which you can uh, mitigate some of the damage, so to speak. But, but when it comes to if you're poor, if you're on a fixed income, if you're, whether it's something like a pension or whatever it happens to be, it seems to me that uh, inflation really hurts those who are on the lower end of the income scale. Absolutely. You know, think of one of the, the, the clearest examples of this is whether or not you are a renter or a homeowner. If you have inflation across the board and that's being manifest also in property values, then automatically your your asset, your house is a hedge against inflation. You know, the value of your property is going up as well. But if you're a renter, right, suddenly you have no corresponding asset to point to to say, well, at least my higher rent is being, you know, uh, or, or the, the cost of home services, right, is, is being accompanied by a rise in the asset of my home, right? Because you don't own that home, you're renting. And so, you know, individuals who are renting are automatically going to be harmed relative to those who own a home. So certainly I think the poor also... Uh, or those who don't have uh, economic sophistication or at least moderate sophistication, they, they may not be as clear to them what they should do to hedge the, against the risk of higher prices. It also seems like if you're, I mean, poor middle class, well, even even the question of like, if, you're, if you have debt, I mean, if, if you're 
if the cost of gasoline and electricity and food is going up so much that you're spending all your money there, you still are in difficulty even, even right. because you can't pay your debt, right. right? Because, I mean, that seems to be, I mean, this seems to be like a, the, the fundamental problem. You know, maybe it would be helpful at least to me. I mean, I've studied this over the years, but I think maybe it would be helpful just to pause for just a second I mean, for me and for listeners. And why don't you give us, Steve, a, like the kind of classic understanding of what inflation is. And, and, and we've talked a lot about printing money, right? But it's, it's all digital, right? It's, it's buying securities and everything. Maybe going through that and then, and then looking at the situation that we're in right now, because it seems to me on a kind of whether it's Chicago, Austrian, neoclassical, a lot of different economic uh, schools would say, look, we're in a perfect storm right now. Right. We've got a lot of debt. We've got, we've got inflation. We've got we're trying to do redistribution, fiscal spending, printing money, and it's like this can't be good, right? Is there a way out of it? I mean, there's you know that that some I mean I you know I can fall prey to this kind of like doom. Okay, there's no way out of this, right? But like, is there a way out of it? How do we think about this? And then it goes to this question for for that Sam asked, like, what's going to happen to the average American who is finding it difficult to afford? regular services and wages are just not climbing as quickly as as costs right. are climbing. Like So let's I mean, let's try and do that, that in about say a couple of minutes, Steve, then we'll move on to an even more depressing subject, some <laughs> might say. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, you know, inflation just at, at its root, what we and by the way, in in the business press, you're going to hear inflation used in different ways. But te- classically, we speak about inflation when, we, when economists do. They're talking about a general increase in prices that is attributable to, largely to a sustained demand, right? That exceeds the ability of the economy to produce to keep up with that demand for goods and services, and that's driven by an increase in the money supply. Now, by way of contrast, some people will use inflation to talk about what's really a temporary supply shock. Okay, so you could see, you know, a pandemic might have a supply shock. You might see something happens with the, uh, you know, labor supply that creates a supply shock. In some cases, both of those phenomena are, are occurring, both the supply side and a demand side. Uh, but when it's demand driven, the policy is actually quite clear, which is, well, you cut back on the growth of the money supply and raise interest rates. Now, when that happens, like I said previously, individuals and businesses who have been making investment decisions on the basis of what they thought were excessive savings, right, and they're going to make take certain kinds of risks that they wouldn't have otherwise taken if the interest rates were high, well, suddenly those plans are not going to materialize. Businesses are going to systematically have to, you know, uh, their investments aren't going to be as uh, profitable as they had previously thought. They're typically going to have to lay off individuals and you're going to see unemployment uh, increase. So that's the trade-off that, that you face. And so are we, uh, you know, are we in a lurch? I think we are in a lurch, not as severe as I think you've seen in the past, but certainly the Federal Reserve cannot just sit by and let there be near 7% inflation in perpetuity. That's going to create lots of problems. Well, and of course, uh, this has a political dimension to it, right? Because uh, governments typically don't like it when central banks start to clamp down on inflation because that produces some of the effects that you just described. And that's generally not good for whoever happens to be the government or administration at the time, right? So this will have uh, not just uh, social and economic implications, uh, it's going to have some significant political implications both in the United States and abroad. But speaking of abroad, let's shift topics completely. 
So we, we have an all-Catholic team today on Act and Unwind. That actually doesn't happen that much, but we have an all-Catholic team. So I thought this might be an opportunity for us, especially as we're getting towards the end of the year, to have some reflection upon a, a very broad topic. And uh, I've got some great people here today that we can, who can talk about this. And that is the state of the Catholic Church around the world today. If you look at the global Catholicism, we see lots of different things going on. We see bishops resigning. So we saw last week the Archbishop of Paris, Monsignor Aupetit, resign at the age of 70, having his resignation accepted by Pope Francis as a consequence of alleged indiscretions when he was a, a priest. We see the church, the Catholic Church in Germany today uh, seemingly anxious to commit uh, a type of ecclesial harikari, <laughs> but going down a path which uh, I think most sociologists would tell you is exactly the path you want to go down if you want to render yourself completely uh, irrelevant, <laughs> if not disappear altogether. We have a synod going on, uh, which is about synods, <laughs> synods about synods, and how right. the church does this whole process of synodality. I had to think about how to pronounce that because it's not a phrase we, that rolls off the tongue. We have disputes about who and who may not receive communion. We have some major arguments about liturgy going on. We have the Holy See entering into, or well, it's been in an agreement now with the communist regime in Beijing for it's almost three years and it, it's due to expire next year. We don't know what's in that agreement. We, um, no one's really willing to talk very much about it, but there's a lot of Chinese Catholics who are not very happy with it. So in other words, uh, for many people around the world, it seems to be a somewhat dispiriting time to be a Catholic. I was thinking today back to 2005 when John Paul II died and you had you know, millions of people going to Rome, lots of press coverage about John Paul II's contribution to all sorts of things, whether it was the end of communism or the sort of stand in favor of the idea that there is truth and we can know it and we're not doomed for a sort of postmodern miasma of, of uh, skepticism. It's a very different world, I think, from the, from the world that the Catholic Church finds itself in today. So I don't want this to be a super depressing uh, dis discussion, but I'd like to sort of ask both of you, starting with, say, you, Michael, what do you think are some of the underlying causes of what we're seeing right now? Now, a lot of people would say this all goes back to Vatican II. It's all about Vatican II. There are some people that would say Vatican II was a complete, completely uh, wrong. It took the church off a, a path that it seemed very clear at the time it should follow. There are others who would say, no, Vatican II was a good thing, but uh, the interpretation that was put on it by, let's call it the progressive wing, has caused a lot of problems. And then you have a lot of progressives who would say, no, we didn't follow through on the spirit of Vatican II, and that's why we find ourselves in the situation we're in today. So, Michael, I'd like to start with you. What do you think are some of the deeper, broader causes of some of the disarray in which the, the Catholic Church finds itself today? Well, I mean, that's obviously a, a big, a, a really big question. <laughs> and, sure. and I don't think there's a simple uh, or single answer. I mean, I think there's a lot of things going on. You raised a lot of, a lot of issues. I mean, you know, I think one of the realities is that we've had massive social change in the 20th century um, and the rise of secularism. Uh, we've had 
very serious scandals in the church. Um, change in the church through Vatican II. I mean, I, I don't. I think that people who think that like Vatican II is the solution is the problem. I think is just is wrong. I do think there was some obviously b- bad implementation of Vatican II. I think there was some really bad liturgical imp- implementation of, of Vatican II, which also confused people. Liturgy has a catechetical and a, 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 a also a, a something like a mystagogy, like an element that I think that a lot of people um, who were in a sense non-linguistically catechized by liturgy lost the mystery. Um, you saw like one third of American Catholics have left the church since the 1960s. About half of those, I think, or so became conservative evangelicals, right? So in, in a sense, the church, um, I think you saw this in Latin America a lot, the church began to focus a lot on social issues. It lost its sense of mystery. It, it almost tried to compete with the, with the um, say the temporal world, the secular world on its own terms, and you can't do that. And so it, it lost, you know, I mean, there's a saying in Latin America where the church opted for the poor and the poor opted for Jesus. And so they, they went over into, you know, evangelical churches, Protestantism and things like that. So there, there, there's a lot, a lot going on. I think secondly, you know, th- the fact is the church was deeply influenced by the cultural and social re- um, revolutions as well. I mean, Joseph Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI, uh, wrote on this very much, um, and, you know, he said after the Soviet Union fell, relativism did not die, but it combined with a, 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 with this desire for gratification to form a very potent mix. Um, so you you have just the influence of secularism in the church. And, you know, as, as Ratzinger, and you, we've talked about many times, Ratzinger, you know, identified like there's a crisis of truth. There's a deep crisis of reason. There's a crisis of, of faith. There's a crisis of progress and like this kind of technical worldview. And, and so a lot of his pontificate and the pontificate of John Paul II was really to go back to what does it mean to be a human person? And there's a deep anthropological crisis, right? As, as John Paul said, the, the fundamental error of socialism was anthropological in nature. That is, it got the person wrong. So there's these things that are going on and, and the church is, in, as it is in all different ages, trying to wrestle um, to, to proclaim the gospel amidst uh, confusion. And this is not the first time you've had things like this. It's not, it's not brand new. I think one of the weaknesses of, mo- of moderns is we, we almost think this is the only time the church has ever had problems before. Well, no, the church has, has problems on and off. And so, you know, the, the scandals, the sexual scandals, the failure of church officials to deal with the injustice committed Injustices committed against young people, um, the the covering up, the clericalism. These are all like deep failures within the church, and they have resulted in the loss of faith. Now, at the same time, there's also some, some really great things going on, right? I mean, there's some dynamism now in, say, 2021 and, and in the whole 2000s that like when I was at Notre Dame in the 80s, Notre Dame was a great place to become a Protestant in the 80s. Um, you know, it was boring. All the Catholicism was boring. It was effeminate. Um, it was kind of soft social justice. There was nothing that stood it apart. He, now, I think you see pockets of different movements within the church, uh, lay groups, uh, different religious orders. Um, you see a deep um, movement towards the revival of liturgy. You see growth of the church in Africa. Um, you see growth of the church in, in other places. And, you know, I think what you're finding is people who are practicing Catholics today are much more committed to the teaching of the church, both doctrinally and morally, 
uh, then then you know there 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 are increasingly fewer cultural Catholics. I mean, maybe Germany is an ex- uh, exception to this, but like in France, in the United States, et cetera. If you're if you're a practicing Catholic, and you're you're increasingly a lot more committed to the church. People are having more children. They're more involved in their communities. So there's a lot of, I think there's a, there's, you know, there's this kind of classic thing going on. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it that that we could talk about, but I don't, I don't think it's, it's, it's just monolithic. I think there's a lot of weakness in the church and there's increasing secularization. At the same time, there's a lot of vitality as well in the church. Well, let me just uh, shift to Steve here by Playing off something you just said, Michael, you were talking about how we have um, the sort of cultural Catholicism in the sense of people seeing themselves as Catholic as a sort of identity type of thing. It's, it goes often went along with a sort of you know, Irish identity, Polish identity, all these sorts. Of, that's all dying, and I frankly I think that's fine. And can I say <laughs> can I say just well, one quick thing on cultural thought? It's really actually not culturally Catholic, right? And like a culture, what what are now called cultural Catholics are really just secular Catholics. I mean, I think because yeah, yeah. of that point you just made, Sam, which is important, like it, it's no longer connected to Italian, Polish or Irish culture that actually is I- influenced by Catholicism. Now it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, my, my parents were Catholic. That That's a, you're actually a cultural secularist at that point. And I think that's that actually that 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 secularism is those people are stopping to practice, which is, you know has a lot of negatives to it, but also it, it shows that what you're seeing is people who are practicing are in fact becoming more quote unquote culturally in the positive sense Catholic. Sorry for that interruption. Sure. Well, here's a, a thing that I've often thought about and it relates to this. If everything was so wonderful before Vatican II, then why did everything fall apart exactly. so quickly? Yep. Right? That's so exactly that's, right. So, Steve, I want to I want to turn to you now and just say, so what are your general reflections about some of these deeper causes right. that we see for this disarray among significant parts of the Catholic Church, particularly in, let's call it, the West? Sure. Well, I, I think the causes are complex, but what I think is very interesting about the past year is that it's it's very infrequent that you see a crisis that is truly global in nature and that affects and touches all of Catholicism as a result. So, so for example, um, with, with the pandemic, I think you see not only, of course, the, the shutdowns that resulted in all sorts of individuals who had gone to mass, maybe regularly, maybe periodically, and then they stopped going to mass because things were shut down and then oftentimes they didn't return. So what I think this past year has has cause is is a kind of a winnowing, right? We're individuals who are sort of on the margins. And of course, we, we, we have a duty to go reach out to those margins and bring those people back, right? That's our evangelical duty. But nevertheless, there are some individuals who are just marginally attached to Catholicism, maybe in name only. They were Sunday, Easter, and, and Christmas Catholics. And then this pandemic sort of closed that door and they stopped returning. On the other hand, in certain pockets, as as Michael has pointed out, there has actually been a return and, and a surge of return to mass. So I recently read that in uh, Guinea-Bissau, Guinea I think that's how you pronounce the country in Africa, they've seen an increase in the Catholic uh, population after the COVID lockdowns. And so, you know, depending upon where you are in the world and the vibrancy or strength of that, uh, you know, faith commitment, you're, you're going to see different consequences. And so uh, I think in many regards, this past year has been an opportunity for a winnowing. And by the way, not only that, but also in the manifestation of how certain 
clergy have responded. And I'm inspired by St. Charles Borromeo, who you know, during the plague back in the uh, 16th century, um, he he actually was really, uh, I guess it was in the 16th century, whatever that pl- the plague was, uh, He there's a, a famous painting of him administering the sacraments uh, to victims of the plague in Milan. And, and that's quite inspiring because you're gonna see individuals who are gonna manifest a knowledge that life is more than just the here and now, that there's something very deep, uh, eternal, and that we're all individuals that have an eternal destiny and how are we gonna respond accordingly? Well, here's a question for both of you. In, it relates to this, something you just raised, Steve, about the, the pandemic. We saw in, again, mostly in Western countries, the church shut down in many respects access to the sacraments as a consequence of the pandemic. And in many cases, this happened before the state civil authorities started mandating these sorts of things. So I've often wondered, did did the church miss an opportunity for deeper evangelization to make the point that you just made, Steve, that life is in this world is short. There are some very important um, let's call them mystical realities that are among us that we need to we need to be focused upon, we need to appreciate more. Did did a lot of bishops miss the boat here? So yeah. that so that, you know, to say not just in terms of telling state authorities, look, our sacraments are really important. You may not understand that, you may not care about that, but it's really important for us. And this is a genuine question of religious liberty. Did they miss a, the chance to sort of not just remind the state of the right. limits of its power, but also to remind Catholics that, look, the sacraments are really important. You just can't say, well, you know, there's a pandemic, so therefore everything must come to an end. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think early on when the pandemic was first hitting, I certainly understand the response of the bishops to thinking in terms of the common good and being uncertain about how severe this was to be able to restrict uh, access to the sacraments in certain cases and not having public masses and so forth. Um, I do think at the same time, it is an opportunity as as we learn more uh, uh, for for clergy themselves to think deeply about their ability to and, and willingness to take the sacraments to the faithful, even if the faithful can't publicly congregate until more data is is gathered about the severity of the of the pandemic. And so, you know, I I think today, to the extent that there may be bishops that are considering imposing vaccines as a condition to access the sacrament, that's where my alarm bells start going off. You know, the, to, to require somebody not knowing what their medical state is to get a vaccine in order to access the sacrament, that strikes me as, as not being <laughs> compatible with what we understand uh, the, the importance of the sacraments to be. You know, I would just say, uh, of adding to, St- yeah, I share Steve's concern about the vaccine mandates on that for Catholics. Um, but let me say, I think it, it was a tough, it was tough, right, to figure this out, how to do this, Sam, at this time, right? So as Steve pointed out, I mean, in one sense, the church, by saying, look, we don't know exactly what's going on. There's a pandemic going on. And so we're going to take the common goods very seriously, and we're going to take the health of our of our flock very seriously. Right. And so what we're going to do is, without the state telling us, because we're a civil association with with liberty, and we don't, and I think this is a, a this is where there's this tension, right? Because in one sense, the church is criticized for 
going ahead of the state and doing it. But in another sense, you could praise the church for doing that. So like, we're going to make a decision based on what we think is the best, not when what the state tells us to do, right? And I think that's the role of civil society, right? If we, if we just do, we can do whatever we want until the state tells us that we can't do it. I mean, that's not a good, healthy, civil association view of the, of the common good and of, of liberty. So in a sense, you could defend the church there. Now, I do think... Um, the other thing I think that's important for, for Catholics to understand is, you know, the church is given power to loose and to bind, right? That does not mean the church can do whatever it wants and change the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? And, and there, there's a battle right now over that very thing, whether it's marriage and communion, um, a contraception, et cetera, et cetera. There are but, moral but, teachings. But, but, but let me get, further say, than that, Michael, no, right? but let because me, but we let have me, people today yeah. in the church— who deny things like the veracity of the scriptures? Mm-hmm. Of course, right? Well, that's, yeah, it's a we have people who deny the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. They deny they're we Protestants. People, basically, they deny transubstantiation. Well, but, it, but it's even beyond that. It's yep. beyond that. It's be it's questioning. It's it's a fundamental skepticism of claims that let's call it small or small o orthodox Christians. Right have always had. And it goes beyond moral questions. Yep. It goes to questions right. of how we know what we know. Now, we've had crises in the Catholic Church before, and but it hasn't quite got to this point, right, where you have people saying, well, I'm a Catholic, but I just don't buy this resurrection stuff. Right. Or right. the Gospels right. are <laughs> basically made yeah. up by... And by the way, there are Scripture scholars who have spent the last 40 years... Oh, yeah deconstructing the scriptures to make them essentially unknowable. Oh, yeah, of course. To make the person of Christ unknowable, despite the fact that you find in Vatican II the firmest, the firmest affirmation that the four Gospels are actual accounts, real accounts of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So we're beyond sort yeah. of some so of let, so let, the So let's break right? this. I think that, I mean, so, you know, I agree with you. Okay, this is a complete disaster, and and we have to we have to um, address that. So let, let's break this into two different parts, though, right? Because your first question was, how did the church handle the pandemic, okay? And I think now, then your second point is, what is the deep, what are the deep crisis of faith that's taking place in, in the church, right? Where you actually have church officials and ministers who are, in a sense, promoting right, secularism and undermining the deepest tradition of the, of the faith. So let's break those into two parts. So let me just finish the part on, on, the, on the, um, the pandemic. I mean, in one sense, so we talked about the common good part, uh, and it's tough, right? So I think there's two or three things that can happen. One, let me just make this point on authority. I mean, the church does have the authority to say, okay, you don't need to receive the sacraments for the next month. Make sure you honor the Lord's Day. You can't you can't say don't honor the Lord's Day. Okay. You can't say, oh, you don't have to pay attention to Sunday. Right? No, that the church cannot say. But it can say you are dispensed from the sacraments because of this global pandemic. And in a sense, that's actually also good for traditional Catholics, of which I would count myself one, to hear because we're not the arbiters, right? The the, the authority was given to the church. And so in that sense, the church has that authority. At the same time, I, I think Steve makes it really important point, there was not enough creativity among the clergy to get the sacraments out to people, to make it clear that sacraments matter, that confession matters, that the Eucharist matters. And there, I think the church was a little, wasn't as creative as it could have been. 
And so I think there's, you know, there, I think there were some successes and there were some failures, but I do think your, your point is really important. And this goes, I think to your, your second deeper point is did the pen, did the church's response to the pandemic in a sense Take undermine or devalue the reality that in order for us to live as Catholics, we must participate in the sacramental life of the church. And did the church in saying, oh, you're dispensed from it, was it, did it, did they go so far as to, in a sense, say, it really doesn't matter. And I think that combined with what you brought up, Sam, that there are active forces within the church to undermine the tradition of the faith, right, is a very serious problem. And, and, and I think this is leading in a, in a sense to a crisis of authority, because I know traditionalist Catholics who just disobey the bishop. <laughs> well, wait, or they say Vatican II is not real, right? Well, if you say Vatican II is not real, right, you're, you're pushing yourself outside the church. That's different from saying the implementation of the liturgy in Vatican II was a complete disaster. Okay, that's one thing. To say Vatican II is not an authentic council, right, is a completely different position. That means you're putting yourself outside the church. Now, and again, and again, I want to say part of that goes to very much to your point. The church has not exercised its authority. Let me, let me say, I think broadly, okay, I'll be provocative here. If you look at what's happening today across the, the, the globe, but especially in the West, and if you look at it in everything from education to sexuality, to the church, to, to culture, et cetera, what we've seen is the abdication of responsibility by adults to take, to take responsibility for young people and for those in their charge. And so in a, in a sense, we have it's radical individualism where everyone's looking out for their own interests and their own ideological position and not taking responsibility. So what did the church do? The church had clerics that abused, sexually abused, committed injustice against hundreds and thousands of people. I, mean, I don't know if it's hundreds of thousands, but thousands of people. Okay. And what did the church do? It covered it up. Okay. Look at today, for example, we have this, like, I think somebody told me, like, I don't know if the numbers are right. Like some like 20% or 15% of Generation Z are declaring themselves to be LGBTQ. Okay. What is that? I'll tell you what that is. It's the failure of adults to help vulnerable children walk through the vicissitudes of teenage life and get to understand who they are and what their deepest desires for marriage and family are. Instead, what it is, it's using children who are vulnerable for either political purposes or their own disordered sexual gratification. And you see this in the church, you see it in schools, you see it in everything. You see a deep failure of adults to act like adults and to ha take responsibility to think generationally. And this is deeply also embedded in the church. And so it's a crisis of authority because it's a failure of responsibility of men and women to act like adults and care for children. Instead, everyone is used as a political tool and a political pawn. And when this happens, you have a breakdown. And you're seeing this very much right from in the curia for their irres irresponsibility to bishops, to priests, to parents, to educators across the board. So I think that the crisis we're seeing in the church is really a deep crisis in the West of the failure of of men and women to act like adults and care for those in their charge. 
Well, let's just t- just shift the discussion slightly now. Because Do you disagree with me? Our time. No, no, I'm just moving to, to this discussion on to the next point, which is I think we, we've, we need to talk about some of the good things that are going on in the Catholic Church today. So I'm going to I'll give you one quick insight I have, and then I'll turn to Steve and then end with you, Michael. But recently I was in Rome and I gave a lecture to probably about 100 uh, African priests from Francophone Africa. And I have to say, I was blown away. I was blown away by their maturity. I was blown away by their erudition. I was blown away by their degree of faithfulness. I was incredibly impressed by their knowledge of things that I expected them to know very little about. I was extremely impressed by the way that they articulated themselves. And it frankly put a lot of Western clergy to shame. And I mention this because it seems to me we forget that over the past 50 years, we've seen this enormous growth of Catholicism in places like Africa, but other parts of the world as well. And I think maybe we in the West, we, we often are, get so wrapped up, rightly, with many of the problems that Michael mentioned, that we forget that there are these wonderful things going on, that the church is still evangelizing, it is still bringing people to Jesus Christ, it is still reaching out to the poor and helping them in concrete ways that build them up rather than make them dependent. So I found that to be a, that's, that to me is a real sign of hope for the future. So Steve, what's, what's yours? Yeah, I, I, it's great to hear that that was your experiencing over there. And that's kind of what I've heard and what I've observed, at least when I see priests, younger priests from uh, typically Africa, who just are very inspiring uh, men. Uh, I think that also has a little bit of an echo here in some of the <laughs> surveys that they've done of uh, U.S. Catholic priests and seminarians. Now, of course, this is more here domestically, but uh, it's showing that increasingly, particularly in the areas of moral theology, there is a far greater adherence to what the church's teachings are in this area than, say, was happening with priests who were being ordained in the 1970s. And so what you really want is you do want clergy who are committed to the to the faith completely and without reservation. Of course, those are the ones that will inspire the faithful to be holy as well. So I'm very encouraged by the surveys that are indicating that the young men who are entering into the priesthood these days um, are, are those types of individuals who adhere to what the church teaches. You know, one other thing that I did find encouraging, and again, this is a bit more U.S.-centric, but since the speech was given in Milan, I guess it has something to say across the globe. But um, Archbishop Gomez, who's the president of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, did speak out about some of the critical theories and ideologies uh, that have been propagated, particularly in the United States. And he pushed back, and he was very blunt. Uh, he, you know, There was an uproar over his speech in some quarters, but he said, and I'm just going to quote here, he said, today's critical theories and ideologies are profoundly atheistic. They deny the soul, the spiritual, transcendent dimension of human nature, or they think that it is irrelevant to human happiness. They reduce what it means to be human to essential, essentially physical qualities. And I was glad to see the leader of the U.S. You know, Catholic Conference um, to speak up and just say, you know, th- this is an error. 
And while there may be some good elements or good intentions behind individuals who promote such theories, in the end, it leaves out God. And he referenced both Pope Emeritus Benedict as well as Pope Francis and saying, look, if you leave out God, there's really no grounds for us to treat one another as brothers and sisters. And so I'm encouraged that we have a leader here in the United States among the bishops um, to, to speak out in that way. Yeah. I, Michael, well, what's your optimistic point? Well, you know, I, I, start, I did start earlier with optimism. So, um, but you brought me down into dark hole, Sam. Um, <laughs> so, uh, because both things are true, and they always are. I mean, I would say one, just one pushback to you. I mean, I, I, I mean there was the, the famous line, it's like, the world woke up and found itself Aryan. You know, I mean, this, the, the, the challenges of orthodoxy are constant. And, you know, as I said earlier, our age is, we have our own challenges, but, but they're, not, they're not unique in the sense that, 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 that we always, uh, you know, the gospel has to be completely, like, always uh, proclaimed. And, you know, Ratzinger and, and, and Paul VI and John Paul and Benedict XVI talked about this new evangelization, which was not just evangelization to new places like Africa, which I'll talk about in a second, but also to re-evangelize those places that have lost the faith. And I, and I think, so, so let me say, I think there's a lot of good things going on. One, you mentioned Africa. I think I had a, a, an Act in You online, uh, I mean, sorry, Act in You online, yeah, a conversation uh, with uh, three Africans. And I, I pr- made this provocative question. I said, do you, do you think it could be said that Africa is in many ways the inheritor of Christianity and Western civilization in many ways? And one of the, uh, all of them said, yes, it was very interesting. And one of them was, was a Nigerian priest, very, very bright, did his doctorate in Rome, uh, uh, influenced by Benedict XVI. A lot of Africans are big fans of Benedict XVI. Okay. Uh, the liturgy in Africa is good. I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing what's going on there. And he, he said, look, when, when the faith came to Africa, there were problems. We had problems with polygamy. We had problems with animism. We had problems with, you know, he listed some, he said, but in one sense, it spoke to us. It resonated with us. The goodness of being, the goodness of life, the goodness of family, et cetera. And so it really, you know, we, we had to be purified, but it, but it, was, it resonated with our, in our culture. He said, now we're getting the West coming with its secularism, trying to undermine this faith. And Africans are saying no. And I think it's, it's, it's a really inspiring thing that you, you talked about, Sam. I, I've seen the same thing. We also are seeing revitalization of the liturgy. The liturgy is, is very, very important. It's, it's non-linguistic representation of the, of the mysteries. And what, as Catholics, of course, we believe in the real presence. We believe, um, you know, and I won't go into deep into, into Catholic uh, doctrine, but that the liturgy is a, represents this and it matters. And you're seeing young people, lots of young people, actually going to very traditional liturgy. Um, and you're seeing a lot of young priests who are much more careful observing the, uh, the rubrics in a way that the priests of the 60s, 70s, and 80s just, just did, did away with. Um, you're seeing the growth of, I think, faithful movements, uh, care for the poor, lots of activities. Um, in, in you know, the church where I go, there's, there's cares for the poor, there's, there's outreaches to this, outreaches to that, meal trains. If someone gets sick, if someone's uh, pregnant and, 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 uh, or just had a baby and needs help, if um, someone has lost a, a spouse, immediately, I mean, you, you can't even, Sam, if you say, oh, I'm going to bring food to somebody who's sick, okay, yeah, you, you can, you're, four months from now, there's an opening because people are so, or are so active in that. Um, I think the rise of, like just, for example, a lot of young Catholics are not practicing contraception. So they're having children and, and children 
I mean, that the, these churches are filled with, with young children. Um, and so I think there's, and I, I, like you, get the chance to travel, not just in the, in the United States, but abroad. And one thing that happens, I think, for Catholics, if you don't travel very much, you can really get down. Like, oh, you know, it's just, everything's bad, everything's bad. But I, I've talked to young priests in America and abroad, uh, to bishops, to um, to uh, faith, you know, just regular lay people, and there are so many positive things going on. It's unbelievable. You don't hear about it. It doesn't dominate the news, but it's happening and it's growing. And I was like, one more thing I'd like to say, you know, Archbishop Cordelioni of San Francisco, he wrote a, a beautiful letter to um, the students at Riordan High School. I mean, so it's not just Archbishop Gomez. There's, you know, and like we can be down on the bishops and I can critique bishops, you know, a lot. But, you know, we've, Sam, you, Steve and I, we've met a lot of bishops. We know that there are very faithful bishops over the United States, Africa, Europe, Latin America, Asia, who are totally committed. And, and there's just a lot of, a lot of good things. But he says this to the young women. He says, to the young women, this is Archbishop Cordelioni, your fertility is a blessing to be cherished, not a problem to be affixed or an appliance with an on and off switch to be flipped at will. God has given you the awesome gift to be able to conceive and bring to the light of day a unique human being with an immortal soul, right? And he says, we have to cherish that gift. To the young men, there used to be a time when if a young man caused inconvenience, he would be a real man and take responsibility for it. And he says to all of you, do not be victims of culture. There are powerful forces in our country that use slogans to co-opt you into being agents of their self-serving agenda, but you must see through the lies. Abortion providers are not for choice. Every birth for them is a lost sale. And he goes on strong and clear, but also very, very positive, um, giving a vision of escape, as it were, from this hall of mirrors of materialism and consumerism, which is, it offers nothing but nihilism and darkness. And I think, so I want to say, like, yes, there are deep problems in the church. There's a battle going on in the church for the soul of the church and for the soul of, of young people um, and for families. But, you know, Number one, we realize, of course, as Catholics, that ultimately this is a battle of powers and principalities and that it is God's battle. Um, but also that just the, the I, I would say, the amount of positive things going on uh, right now amidst a lot of darkness is quite remarkable in Africa, in the United States, in Latin America, in Asia. And I think there's just always something, always there's hope, which is the confident expectation that Jesus Christ will deliver us. But there's also just so much hope in, in, the, in the vitality of Catholics throughout the world. And let's call it a wrap there. So thank you very much for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind in your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. As Eric Cohn always says, five-star reviews only so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Steve. Thanks to Michael. For the Acton Institute, this is Sam Gregg, Eric Cohn, and others. We'll see you next week.